Welcome to the Small Business Tax Savings Podcast, your weekly dose of accounting and tax tips specific to small business owners. You will be on your way to growing your business and paying the least amount in taxes as legally possible. Here's your host, Mike Jezoshek, CPA. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode. Today, we're continuing just a mini series that we're doing on business exits, and we have Stuart Sorkin on, who's the managing member at Business and Legal Advisors. And if you didn't check out last week's episode, we talked about why will every business owner exit their business and how can you best prepare for that? But this week, we're taking it a step further, and we're going to those people that are in that process of, hey, now we're in the process of where the sale is actually happening. And we want to talk about what does the M&A process look like? And the reason that I brought Stuart on for this is I think a lot of people, they think they're too small, or they think that their business is too small for this idea of a merger or an acquisition, and they don't understand what that process even looks like. It can be a lot more complicated, and they might feel overwhelmed with the whole idea. And so I want to bring Stuart on. Just to give some clarity of, you know, what does this M&A process look like? So, Stuart, welcome back to another episode. Thank you. So, uh, I'm going to kick it off uh, on this one. And again, just kind of going through that M&A process. Okay. Well, let me start by something you started with, Mike. And that is, if you create something that has value, And having value means it is something that can go beyond you as the owner. You are starting to create something that can be sold. So the question comes in is, is still on the first level is that, is this a business that you're happy with just getting, you could be just happy getting the income and living on the income and it may go to your kids or something, if they don't want it, you don't really care or may go to some family and friends, or are you trying to really grow something that eventually you may want to do something else and retire? That is the difference between a lifestyle business and business, other types of businesses. So assuming that you do not want a lifestyle business and you want to grow your business, then you have to build a company that is beyond you. And that means because in most companies, most founders, are the biggest block to the success of their company because of what has made them successful. Most entrepreneurs is their belief in themselves and their belief in their product. The problem is that that also goes the other way. Sometimes those that they think they're the smartest man in the room, they do not necessarily willing to learn from their employees, consultants, et cetera. Someone who is willing to look at both is key. You have to look at have that check on yourself. And that check can be with management, it could be with outside the coach, it could be with your employees, but you do need to delegate decision. Every entrepreneur starts a business dealing with sales and marketing, product delivery, accounting and finance. The smart ones figure out what they're not good at and they delegate those. Then you are creating a management team. Once you create the management team. Now you've got to make sure they stay because part of this is the best way to sell a business is as an absentee owner is the major change when you sell the businesses, you're not there. So mm-hmm. the business can run without you. But the point is, depending on who your buyer is, they're going to pay a lot more for you if 
they know your management team is staying after you sell. So how you have to look at how you can potentially golden handcuff those key employees to stay. And we may talk about that if we have some time as to some specifics, but I don't want to get too bogged down in that piece of it. So let's start with the quote process. Assuming for a minute that you're not going out and actually trying to sell your business right now, but someone comes to you and says, hey, I want to buy you. First step is both sides would sign what's known as a mutual NBA, a non-disclosure agreement, which basically says, I'm going to show you stuff, but you're agreeing that you won't use it to compete against me. You won't steal my employees. You won't go after my customers, et cetera. That is a key piece that needs to be in place before you start any kind of dance with, with a potential acquirer. If at that point in time, the acquirer will come back with what's known as a letter of intent or sometimes also an MOU, a memorandum of understanding. This is a non-binding document that says this is the outline of the transaction. However, if it's not in the LOI, if it is a material deal term, sometimes it is very difficult to get that term in. I analogize that the seller is Cinderella at the ball before the LOI because everyone wants to dance with her. Next, the minute they sign the LOI, they're 6 a.m. the next morning in the ashes again because the buyer at that point is trying to look for every way possible to possibly pay you less than what you've agreed to in the LOI or will want more from you in certain ways or will want potentially free services. How are you going to handle various aspects of the transition of the business? So the LOI is extremely critical and needs to cover things. Is there significant warranty work? Who's responsible for warranty? How are you going to deal with work and process? What kind of sale is this going to be? Is it going to be a stock sale or an asset sale? There are significant tax differences for each, as well as liability purposes for each. And there are certain industries that only do asset sales, and there are certain industries that probably only do stock sales. And the tax consequences are generally better for sellers on stock sales. Because stock sales, you're going to get mostly capital gains treatment on buyers, but that means the seller is taking your liabilities because he's buying your company. So if there are liabilities in the company, they're potentially assuming them or at least having a risk that could come back and bite them. So a vast majority of the deals are what are known as asset purchase deals where they buy significantly all of the assets, they leave your company in place, and therefore the liabilities stay with the company. The buyer gets to value the assets and write them up to fair market value. So if you had fully depreciated equipment as a seller, they're going to write that equipment up. And unfortunately, the seller will now have ordinary income on the sale of the equipment because he has no basis. And then it's allocated among seven classes, and the last class is generally goodwill. And that is the value of the business that's in excess of all of the assets you can allocate it to. 
and that sellers get capital gains on. So they would generally want to have that piece of it. Another thing to seriously consider is, can you stay post? Do you want to stay post acquisition? Short transition is usually a requirement. However, my co-author, for example, walked away from a whole bunch of money because he was a former Navy officer. He had run this company for 20 years and he knew he would, he would be, feel miserable every day that they made decisions that he didn't like if he was stuck there. And he walked away for, on a quality of life issue. So it's something to evaluate is, you know, and making sure that regardless of whether or not you're, quote, giving the services for free, that you allocate part of the services to services so the IRS doesn't come back in and say, oh, no, we're going to say it was $200,000 for services, not $10,000 for services. We're going to tax the seller as ordinary income. So specifying an amount that is relates to the covenant not to compete and to any consulting that is being given that's, quote, part of this purchase prices in court. These are all things to lay out, you know, are there key employees, you know, and can you deliver those key employees? 60% of the deals that go to LOI do not close. Hmm. Failures in due diligence where they can't produce the numbers, failures to deliver key employees, which is why golding handcuffing key employees in advance makes so much sense because they can't mess up your acquisition. And several where what happens is deal runs out. The founder is the primary sales guy. Due diligence takes six months. He is spending six months working on due diligence. What is he not doing? Selling. What happens? The buyer says, oh, you didn't make your numbers this the last two quarters. We're going to haircut your price 30%. And at that point in time, he's already invested possibly six figures in legal fees. And he's now got a choice. Take a haircut or walk away from the deal. So it is so critical that buyers aren't surprised during due diligence. Mm-hmm. Now, Stuart, just a question on the, on the LOI. That is something, just for, just for clarity for our audience, that is something that is negotiated before officially being signed, right? So Correct. the buyer that might come with the LOI and the seller has an opportunity to adjust, negotiate and stuff before it's actually official. In, in fact, I tell my client, I tell clients that if you, if you do not seek professional counsel, whether it's me or someone else, prior to the LOI, you've tied one hand behind their back with regard to getting anything anything additional or favorable in the deal. Yeah. And so the, the, the LOI is not necessarily getting an LOI from the buyer, but the what you're talking about is is actually signing that LOI. Yeah, what, what the points that you're going to negotiate here, another point is, a buyer is going to say, okay, if I'm going to do this due diligence, you're agreeing you're not going to put the company up for sale to anyone else for some period of time. There's usually an exclusivity clause that says you can't sell while we're in, while I'm doing due diligence. You can't even talk to anyone else during due diligence. So if the deal falls apart, you got to, you, you've also been off the market for a period of time. Mm-hmm. What are the time periods for due diligence? 
You know, uh, what are the financing contingencies? Another thing that you that that I'm seeing more that we've been seeing more of, and I think you'll start to see more of, is more cashless transactions. And what I mean by cashless is because banks rates are up, you will see people coming in and potentially buying the common stock and having a redeemable preferred stock for the seller and let the seller be taken out over time and doing a growing, putting two businesses together. They stay together for some period of time with the, with the older side, but the Seymour senior side getting some form of equity that says he's going to get a minimum of X when he says he wants to sell, but he gets a participation in the growth, some form of participation in the growth, depending on what his participation in the business is. But that require does not require as much cash because you're not giving it's not going to go into the business. The money then can go into the business rather into the seller's pocket immediately. Makes so sense. That, so now you have a signed LOI and now you'll have a purchase agreement, possibly a seller note with a stock deal. You will have some form of reps and warranties escrow to make sure that, you know, no creditors come out of the woodwork. Once they paid you, you will have potentially a personal guarantee or a stock escrow agreement or some other form of collateral for the seller financing. You will also potentially have some kind of independent contractor or employment agreement. And those will all at least be the major deal terms of all of those should be spelled out in the LOI. So from what I'm gathering, kind of from a very general standpoint, you have an NDA that kind of starts this process of of being able to share information. From there, you have an LOI that then gets negotiated, signed, put into place. And that starts kind of this due diligence process. And so there's negotiations, there's digging, there's understanding more about your business, which leads to a purchase agreement and a note and all those kind of things that eventually lead to the deal. To a closing. Closing. And where a lot of people fall off is you get the NDA, you get the LOI, but that due diligence process is where a lot of things fall off. You mentioned 60% of LOIs don't close. And, and, and is it because they're stuck in that due diligence process? People well, that- they, they, yeah, it's one, they have made representations financially that the due diligence doesn't support. Their books aren't as good or they misled their pipeline, or there are contracts that they've anticipated they would get during the process that don't come in. So it's not, I don't want to say it's all due diligence, but it's mm-hmm. the fact is that during the due diligence period is when they can figure out financially whether or not this acquisition makes sense and whether or not they can successfully integrate your company into theirs profitably. And on a timely basis. And the one thing I tell sellers is don't hide. Don't hide anything. They will find it. I find clients sometimes try to, you know, say, well, I'm going to take care of this off to the side. And invariably, it could come back and bite them. Since in most cases, there's some kind of ongoing relationship for some period of time, whether it's as a lender or employee or a consultant. You poison the water when someone thinks you you tried school. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. So I'm a big believer. If I discover something that I strongly encourage my client to just 
let's just get it out there. Let's uh, deal with it. Let's be done with it as soon as possible, because otherwise it looks like you are hiding something and that does not bode well. Yeah. Well, that makes complete sense. And this has been uh, a super helpful in, in kind of one key takeaway I got from this outside of just understanding the general process is that whether you're the buyer or the seller, it's important to find someone like you, Stuart, that, that understands this stuff. Because when you get into these agreements and if you're just trying to do this solo or you're by yourself, there can be things in there that you can misstep on the NDA or misstep on the LOI, which will affect the deal as you get deeper into this. And so it's important well, early on. What I'm going to say is they always say that, you know, the ad says you should never sell your house without a realtor because it's your biggest sale in your life. No, sale of your business may, may be even bigger and you need a professional. And there are a lot of great professionals out there, but there are also a lot of attorneys and CPAs who just do routine business law and do not do M&A and they are not necessarily the best person. Mm -hmm. They do need to have someone who really does knows the in and outs of M&A work to really protect yourself and to maximize minimize your risk and maximize your return, whether you're selling or buying. Yeah. And this, then, you know, just one finalizing note on that is that, you know, as an accountant, I always tell our listeners, I always tell our clients that if you are ever thinking about or looking into uh, selling your business or any kind of highly appreciated asset, reach out to us. And because there's so right. many things that you can do on the tax planning side, not to mention everything that's part of the deal that you guys work on, but there's a lot of things that can be done on the tax planning side. And so many of those things need to be done before that deal closes. And yep. so I can't tell you how many people have come to me in taxi and said, wait, I, I sold this and have a massive gain. And they're coming to us after the fact. And sure, there might be some things we can do, but the vast majority of tax strategies are thrown out the door early on in that process. So just that's, that's exactly right. You've hit on an issue that is so key. And that is if you are not this week or next week, Getting financial, what's your year-end number, if you are a flow-through entity and have to report December 31st, if you do not know within 5% where your numbers are, there's a major fallacy in your financial records because you should be, at this point in time, be able to know for the most part because you should know what your client pay. You can control some of your expenses and billings. So make your decision. This is the time to make the decision. Are you going to accelerate or decelerate? can't make that decision unless you have good financials. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, this has been super helpful. Again, we're going to have a blog post that kind of accompanies this. We're going to have all of Stuart's information, some link to his YouTube channel that has videos and kind of deep dives into this so that you can reach out to him when it makes sense in your, in your life. And so Stuart, again, thanks for joining us. Stuart Sorkin, managing member at Business and Legal Advisors. And this was part two. Remember last week we talked about why will every owner exit their business and how can you best prepare for it? And today we talked about that M&A process. So if you missed that first episode, definitely check that out. And again, Stuart, thanks for joining us. Thank you for your time. This has been another episode of the Small Business Tax Savings Podcast. If you enjoy our weekly episodes, please leave a review and share with other business owners. You can find previous episodes and more information at www.taxsavingspodcast.com. Thanks for listening and have a great day.